Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite comedian, <laughs> Beat Takashi. Oh, I mean, I think we all remember when we were growing up watching the two beats on <laughs> Japanese TV, yep. listening to some of their uh, classic manzai comedy. <laughs> it's really the Jerry and Dean of our generation. But of course, you might not know this, but Takeshi Kitano, also known as Beat Takeshi, is actually not only a comedian. Did what? You... No, he, he does other stuff, kind of like the number 23 that Jim Carrey did. <laughs> Uh, well, putting that aside, uh, he's a director, an actor, oh. a painter, a novelist, a film critic, a TV host, a magazine columnist, even a recording artist. At his peak in the year 1996, he had seven network TV shows that he hosted. I just watched a documentary about him, and at one point they say he has to go record one of the nine shows that he does. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> That's insane. I actually talk to one of my friends, Christian Murdoch, who spent five years in Japan, and he said you could not turn on the television without seeing Takashi Kitano somewhere. Well, over here, though, his fame rests basically on two things. The movies that he directed and starred in, particularly the Yakuza uh, gangster films, Sonatine and Hanabai, which mm -hmm. translates to fireworks, and also the fact that he's the producer of Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. Which <laughs> Not only the producer, the he's host. also the star yeah, of Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. Yeah, so which is one of many uh, TV shows along those lines that he's hosted. But he's also hosted like TV shows about the economy. He's hosted like serious panel discussions. He had a show about the solar system. <laughs> so Takashi Kitano is everywhere in Japan. But... As you said before, not really in North America. He's mostly known by art house crowds, mm -hmm. especially in his most popular period, the 90s. And that's why it feels a little weird, you know, talking about him as Westerners, because the people in Japan have so many different associations with him that we don't have. We can't look at his films and be informed by his entire body of work that goes around it. Yeah. Because it recontextualizes things for Japanese audiences. When we just have this one piece of art in front of us, and we also know that he did comedy at some point. We basically know him as the Japanese Dirty Harry with um, a bit of an offbeat sense of humor. But let's go back all the way to the beginning. We touched on it a little bit. Takashi Kitano is famous for starring in a comedy troupe called The Two Beats. Mm -hmm. And this was a form of comedy where two men get on stage and argue with themselves. According to such concrete places like Wikipedia, he mostly got famous for making fun of the elderly, the handicapped, and other un-PC stuff. Yes, uh, just recently, a few years ago, he made some not very nice comments about gay people. Oh, no. That became controversial. He apparently somewhere on Japanese TV, he made some joke about, well, President Obama wants uh, gay marriage. Maybe we should have marriage to animals next, which he had to apologize for. I mean, coming from most people, that would be a horrible statement. I I want to, because I like him so much, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> that is say, like the lamest of satirical uh, it, it just reposts. Might, it might just be like, you know, one of many dumb, provocative things he said over the years that he doesn't actually believe. Well, when you have to create so much content, right? You're going <laughs> to yeah. say a lot of stupid stuff. Yeah. Manzai comedy, the definition is that it's uh, fast-talking and really based on puns and misconceptions. But the two beats were also known for the fact that they were considered too vulgar for network TV at the time. They got really in trouble at one point. I think one of their specials, he had to, again, come out and apologize for what he said in it. So as an actor, as a TV personality, he's known as Beat Takeshi. As an arthouse filmmaker, he's known as Takeshi Katana. And he actually makes that distinction himself between uh, the things that he considers comedic work and the things that he considers artistic work. And it's such a sh sharp dichotomy because he's such a, um, a show like Most Extreme Elimination challenge is is so base it's the lowest common denominator but the films he makes are so kind of arty and ethereal and in fact the, most of the movies he directed have not been box office successes in japan his first film violent cop actually was supposed to be a fairly straightforward movie that he happened to star in it was going to be directed by kinji fukasaku who later directed battle royale which uh katano also starred in but when fukasaku had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts uh, Kitano took over himself uh, to direct, which he had never done before. He doesn't look back on that one very fondly. It, it's been forever since I've seen it. Yeah, he talks about that it's kind of a very dry run of his sensibilities. 
it's a straightforward dirty hairy kind of movie mm-hmm. with that katano touch where there's a lot of hanging out if you will or as he specifically says a lot of walking around because they could make that runtime so they padded it out and it just kind of became his style the movies are very slow very almost they almost have a transcendent quality to them uh, the plots are very minimal, but punctuated by sharp and startling bursts of graphic violence. I gotta be honest, as someone who, I would describe myself as an Asian film enthusiast, I had never seen a Takashi Kitano film other than Zaduichi and Getting Any. I have to say I'm really surprised by that, because in kind of the mid-2000s uh, to the mid-90s in that period, he was kind of like inescapable if you were interested in Japanese film. Katana was somebody who, like when I was in high school, I went through a brief period of being like really into him, and then I haven't thought about him that much since. I, I just think because uh, his movies haven't had that much play over here since then. Yeah, but- I think he just hasn't really had a hit like he had back then. Um, So, I mean, this week to me was just a good opportunity to kind of become reacquainted with the movies um, and find that I still like them. I watched so many of his movies this week that once I discovered his stylistic tics, they uh, really resounded with me. I had the slow pace that I would describe as hangout cinema, <laughs> the bursts of violence, the deadpan style to everything that he does. And he's also super funny. Ah, oh, so funny. One film that I know that me and Will both watched was Getting Any. One of the funniest movies ever made. Now, Getting Any starts with a very simple premise, which is a man wants to buy a car so he can have sex in it. Or, as he likes to say, car sex. Well, because he realizes he, he's he's a young, very dim-witted loser who has never had sex and then watches a softcore porn movie where somebody has sex in a car and says, I've got it. If I get a car, women will want to have sex with me. And the whole movie is his misadventures trying to get a woman to have sex with him in a car. Just skit <laughs> after skit, almost Roadrunner-ish, but they just keep expanding and going in these insane directions. And then after a while, he'll be like, well... Um, I bet if you go first class in an airplane, people will want to have sex with you there. Uh, How will I get into an airplane? I know uh, I'll rob a bank and get a ticket. Or another one is like, he'll go to a factory and then he'll be able to make a gun so he can (laughs) rob the bank. Everything becomes more and more convoluted until it ends. And I don't think this is a huge spoiler, but it ends with him being turned into a half man, half fly. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I mean, just like every scene is so... I, I almost never, when I'm just watching a movie alone, like laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. Like I don't you think... sit stone face, just well, it's like taking it in. You laugh usually when you're with other people. I laughed all the way through this. He turns invisible. He <laughs> finds himself on the set of a samurai film. You remember the, the scene where he uh, wants to pick up a girl at a bus stop, and then later he runs into the same girl because the bus is broken down. She says, hey, can you give me a ride? He says, okay. And then she says... Hey, he'll give us a ride. And then everybody from the bus gets into his tiny car and they're like hanging off the top of the car. Or there's another scene when he's got a car that's like the whole exterior frame of it is broken down. And then to repair it, he's like put cardboard boxes all over all over the car to like simulate the frame of it. (laughs) And this is just like a drip in the bucket of how many gags are in this thing. Getting any has a sad backstory of how it came to be. When Takeshi Kitano made it, he was at a very low point in his life. A lot of people around him described him as kind of acting insane. And after the film came out, there was a suicide attempt. Well, he calls it an unconscious suicide attempt. Yes, where he crashed his uh, motorcycle, which resulted in a part of his face being paralyzed. And the joke that many people have said is, what part? Because... (laughs) I think, you know, more than anything, when we're talking about what the appeal of Kitano's films are, it comes down to Kitano himself as a presence, and more specifically, his face. Um, His face is, he looks weird. He looks a little bit like his face is a little bit flattened, and he's got these big circular eyes where the pupils seem just a little too big. Yeah. Um, And he's been called kind of a Buster Keaton-like stone face, which isn't exactly true, because he smiles a lot in his movies, Mm. but... There's an opaque quality to his face. Even when he's smiling or laughing or when he seems angry, it seems like you're not even sure that's what he was really thinking. Yeah, which plays a lot into the gangster films that he uh, ended up making. Mm -hmm. Like, Sonatine have that kind of comedy even when it gets really violent. Well, the most indelible image of that movie is when there's a shootout at a bar and it cuts to Kitano firing at people and his face is just like 
absolutely indifferent. And that's a stylistic tick that he has in a lot of his movies, which is that people will just like stand there, stone faced reacting to something violent going on, usually off screen. Speaking of getting any, uh, did you know that that movie, when it came out in Japan, was marketed as the first film by Beat Takeshi? Um, even though it was his like fourth or fifth movie, as if to say, okay, forget about Takeshi Kitano. This is the comedian here's that's the guy, making a movie. Here's the guy you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, because as you mentioned before, his films were very financially um, shaky when they were released in Japan. And basically he got to keep making movies because Sonatine and Fireworks, which were not successful in Japan, ended up winning awards at film festivals and getting attention in America. Quentin Tarantino uh, released... Um, Sonatine through his Rolling Thunder um, vanity label. I think that Fireworks is probably my all-around favorite uh, Kitano film, and that's not a big boast because it's most people's favorite. Yeah, I I don't know. I think Getting Any is probably my favorite, but <laughs> even though it's not the most typical of them. Well, um, okay, Getting Any is my favorite, but yeah. as far as dramatic film, you know, it's my favorite Takashi Kitano film. Yeah. My favorite beat Takashi film is Getting Any. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about Sonatine for a minute, though, because it's probably the most famous one. Is it? I th- I think so. Because ha- uh, Fireworks is the one that actually won... It won the Golden Lion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, well. anyway, I, um, I think Sonatine is at least the most um, quintessential of them. Sure. Kitano plays an aging mobster who's thinking of getting out of the game. When yeah, his, one last uh, One last mission. score. When his boss sends him uh, to Okinawa, I believe it is, mm-hmm. another area of Japan, uh, to deal with a dispute. When he gets there, he realizes, oh, there is no dispute, and basically I'm being set up to be killed. So what he decides to do is just go to the beach and hang out for a while. And, you know, the last two-thirds of the movie basically are just hanging out, playing dumb games, you know. Not a lot happens, it's just hanging out. You know, you can understand why Tarantino gravitated towards it because sort of like, you know, Reservoir Dogs, it has Mm. that quality of a bunch of dudes just being interested in what the gangsters are doing between them being gangsters. It doesn't go into being really kind of maudlin because these are bad people. Yeah, you never never, lose sight of that. It never makes any bones about the fact that these are bad guys doing bad things, like you said, Mm -hmm. but it's just fun to see People play pranks on each other, pretend to be sumo wrestlers, all very childish things when contrasted to the evil people they actually are. It's what makes it appealing. And I guess the transcendent quality to it comes from the fact that basically these guys are marked for death. And having been marked for death, they can basically just live this time on the beach, almost like free of any concern in a way. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, we're going to die, but we do have this nice time on the beach. Kitano is a director kind of shoots everything in the same coldly dispassionate style. So the stuff on the beach feels the same as the early scene where Kitano as the mob boss is like dumping somebody in a river to drown them. And just waiting to see <laughs> when they'll drown by making it worse and worse as it goes along. Yeah, The beach shows up a lot in Kitano's films. And it's funny because I heard in an interview, someone asked him like, why do you like the beach? Do you find it peaceful? And he went, no, I find forests peaceful. You're one with nature and stuff like that. Mm. Beaches are more of a place where I think of of death because I almost drowned when I was a kid in water and the beach is the thing that represents that the most. Well, there's an austerity to the beach just as an image that I think is consistent with the rest of his body of work. His films are kind of like diamond precise. There's nothing in them that is unnecessary. And when you look at a beach, basically there's there's almost nothing there to look at. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's like a place where you clear your mind. Wow, that's real deep, Will. <laughs> I know. I'm, a, I'm just like Kitano. I am a poet among my many occupations. Are you also a painter? Because his paintings appear in a lot of his films. Especially fireworks. The actual uh, Japanese title, Hanabai, actually translates to something more along the lines of it's a pun on fireworks and flowers, mm-hmm. which I guess are kind of the two contrasting motifs of the movie you know moments of great peace and tranquility and moments of awful violence Kitano for a while in the 90s was trapped in this gangster I wouldn't say ghetto but those are the movies he made Mm -hmm. he even did a movie that took place in America called Brother where it was just more of his gangster shtick with the violence a little bit more heightened but still that same hangout kind of vibe that's one I haven't seen in a long time you watched it this week right yeah there's not that much going on it's like Kitano for beginners what I remember about it is that Omar Epps kind of overplays it (laughs) in his role yeah that's fine probably the most emotional performance ever in a Kitano film I also remember that Kitano 
like can't speak English very well. Oh no, so, he can't. Yeah, but that's made like part of the movie. Mm-hmm. So Kitano, with these kind of struggles at hitting box office success, was finally given the reins to something that was surefire, which was a reboot of the Zatoichi films with Kitano himself playing Zatoichi as a bleach blonde-haired blind swordsman. What is the Zatoichi series? It is a series where a man walks through the Japanese countryside with a cane sword, and he is blind. And he is badass, and he wins the day every time. And there were something like... uh, 30? (laughs) Yeah, 25 or 30 of these movies made between the 60s and the 80s. Very famously associated with an actor called Shintaru Katsu, I Mm -hmm. think his name is. Um... This is another example of, you know, us as Westerners maybe having a different perspective on Katano, because you can imagine when this movie came out in Japan, and I think it's probably still his biggest hit in Japan. Yeah. It it would have had a different resonance to see famous Takeshi Katano, the guy who's on TV every night of the week playing famous Zatoichi, uh, you know, the James Bond of Japan, basically. That would be like if Jim Carrey was in some kind of Batman film. (laughs) Uh, well, <laughs> we can only dream, can't yeah, we? Yeah. This was one of the movies that I did see because when you get an Asian cinema, any new samurai film or something like that that's coming out, like you got to see it. Also, the Weinstein's released this like right hot on the heels of Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. gave it a very sort of Kill Bill marketing campaign. And Kitano, right from the get-go, said that when he was making this movie, he wanted it to be pure entertainment. He consciously went in trying to appeal as wide an audience as possible. Mm. But even with that in mind, the film still has all the same trademark kind of Kitano bits. It's a very idiosyncratic movie. I mean, it has dance numbers in it. Love it. You know, Kitano as Zatoichi disappears for huge stretches of the movie. The movie is based, it's kind of a Yojimbo-like story where uh, Zatoichi wanders to one to one village where he meets these two geishas who reveal that their parents have been killed by this sinister clan who have taken over uh, the village and have hired this skilled bodyguard. And Zatoichi... Uh, doesn't exactly declare war on them, but one by one, the gang starts disappearing. If you compare it to any of his gangster films, it almost has the same structure, and the gunfights are just replaced by sword fights. Yeah. Where as much blood is spilled as in his previous pictures. But Kitano's movies have this sort of relationship between, like, beauty and bloodshed, and and so in this movie... There are so many scenes where, you know, people are like building a house or are working in the fields and it's scored in sort of a percussive way. Yeah, like, like it's a musical. Yeah. So there's something about his the worlds that he creates, even though they're so violent, there's kind of a gentleness to them at times and, well, and I, a, a good humor to them. I think that the way that they're presented as well in such a deadpan fashion, because like at the end of Zatoichi, he fights a bunch of ninjas. It's portrayed in a kind of parodic way Mm -hmm. as opposed to it being something serious where there's actually a threat of danger and the film itself ends on something that angered a lot of people where Zatoichi seemingly uh, reveals that he is not blind and he just closes his eyes to get a better sense of the world well there's the big twist ending though when he says even though I open my eyes I can't see a thing so so he is blind don't worry purist But you don't read that. I was just reading some reviews and people were interpreting that ending as a cynical view. But I think that's reviewers trying to put their own view of what Katano's work is Mm. on any little thing that could give them that opportunity. Uh, Before we move on in Katano's career, maybe it's worth noting that he might also be familiar to Western audiences uh, for Battle Royale and for... He's in Battle Royale. No, no, yeah, yeah. And uh, Johnny Mnemonic. That's why Will responded to me raising my hands because I was getting really excited to talk about Johnny Mnemonic. And also he's in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, the uh, famous Nagisa Oshima film. Which was his first acting role and actually gave him the acting bug. Uh, You want to talk about Johnny Mnemonic? I've never seen it. Oh, well, it's not good, but (laughs) it's so interesting as a time capsule of that period and that kind of William Gibson 90s... Yeah, cyberpunk. But it feels kind of like a ripoff of it because it's very watered down. And it's also, like, frankly, that period when all of America thought Japan was taking over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, which, you know, Katana's also in Ghost in the Shell that's coming out pretty soon. Which is so weird. Is there some kind of contractual obligation that he has to appear, like, Any, every 20 years uh, in what, a Western movie that yeah. has... Orientalist know. kitsch, <laughs> exactly. cyberpunk. This, this Ghost in the Shell movie looks like a real throwback just to... Like everything about the 90s, you know, the whitewashing, the Japanese kitschy iconography, Kitano. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Johnny Mnemonic just has such a crazy cast. Henry Rollins shows up. Dolph Lundgren is a Jesus fountain preacher. There's a dolphin with psychic powers, I think. It's also a partly Canadian film. It's produced by Robert Lantos. And it's all shot in Toronto. What I'm trying to say is 
go watch Johnny Mnemonic. Do not send us your hate letters. To think, if we were just, if we knew who he was in the 90s, maybe we could have run into Takeshi Katana. Like walking around Toronto? Yeah. What, What would you have said? Uh, well, I would have been six years old at the time, so pro- probably nothing. <laughs> and also, he would have probably been swamped by all the people who knew who he was, because he was probably famous here as well to Japanese audiences. Oh, a little bit of uh, Kitano gossip. Oh, yeah. I Apparently in the 80s, he developed a reputation for himself as sort of a guru-like figure. So he had a lot of aspiring comedians and, and media wannabes who would flock around him. And basically, he would use them as his stooges on TV shows. <laughs> he would like basically like torture them on his, on his game shows and stuff. But there was a very infamous incident in the 80s when um, some Japanese tabloid was reporting on Kitano having an affair with uh, a college student. And Kitano responded by going to the office of that tabloid with, 11 of his like stooges know, trashing the office and, uh, and beating people up the, really yeah there was an out-of-court settlement but uh, kitano uh, had to not appear on tv for six months after that that's insane and that just shows a man with too much power that he doesn't know what to do with it other than to hurt the people around him I'd, I'd also like to say one thing that i read in the encyclopedia of japanese pop culture which is a book from the 90s talking about one of his game shows it says there has long been a large audience in japan for vulgar slaps humor strongly spiced with cruelty and Takashi's brand is among the strongest around. Once, as a gag punishment on his Takeshi comedy ultra quiz show, he had a busload of losing contestants lowered into the ocean by a large crane. (laughs) An underwater camera films the desperate contestants clawing at the windows while Takeshi, safe on shore, cackled with roguish delight. It's pretty awful, isn't it? Um, You know, but for comedy's sake. Yeah, for for comedy. Kitano, in the interviews that I've seen him, he's always been a very humble person who uh-huh. says that he's shy and that's why he did the, the personality that he shows well, in the movies that's and the TV. Takeshi Kitano persona but the beat Takeshi persona <laughs> likes likes hurting people you know a movie like Boiling Point which is his second movie uh, you watched that one right yeah I said that most of his more mature movies have this sort of dichotomy between beauty and, you know, violence. Oh, he has not reached that point in Boiling not Point. Not in Bo- Bo- Boiling Point is uh, cruelty and stupidity <laughs> punctuated by violence. <laughs> yes. And I love Boiling Point. I think it's, like, really funny and enjoyable. It, not, not you so much? Uh, I think it's... He's still kind of figuring his way of the kind of stories he wants to tell. Yeah. And I find it's very um, flimsy in its construction. Sure. Because it takes almost an hour for him to show up and then it's just a series of depraved incidents as he kills and rapes everybody around him there are definitely a problematic elements <laughs> yep. but i mean it's just like a pitch black comedy yeah. um and i assume probably would have been more in line with what his tv persona was uh i just want to take a little sidebar and i don't know if you heard about the video game that he was famous for making <laughs> no it was called uh takashi's challenge and it was famously one of the most difficult games of all time it was an open world game where you could go anywhere and you could go see your wife and you can make a decision if you want to like give her food or divorce her <laughs> and if you divorce her you didn't have to punch her to death oh, and no. then punch your children to death as well Oh no! and it was a game where you had to go to karaoke and sing the same song three times and you had to like talk into the controllers that were microphones in a very specific way but later on the controllers weren't microphones anymore so you had to blow in them to get the right set <laughs> And at the end, the game has a stage where you have to survive uh, by flying, like hang gliding and just dodging stuff. That sounds real easy. But if you move down, you can't go back up anymore. (laughs) And if you die, you have to start all the way at the beginning of the game. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Oh, one more thing. One of his TV shows was called Takeshi the Genius's Peppy TV Show. Oh, wow. Great title, well, huh? What could that be? <laughs> Probably him torturing the people yeah. that hung around him. Somebody, somebody ought to, you know, do the season one box set of a few of these shows so that we can see them. I looked into what um, his partner, because they were the two beats, mm-hmm. like what he went on to do. And for the information that I could find, it was almost nothing. He is the Peter Scolari to Takeshi Kitano's Tom Hanks, I guess. <laughs> Where's Peter Scolari these days? He was in the Polar Express. Oh, was he? That was 15 years ago, but... That's right. And um, Beat Takashi, his partner, also appeared in a cameo in, I believe, the Takashis. Oh, yeah. But that was pretty much it. So, you know, Zadoichi, it was a big hit in Japan. The highest point in popularity, even internationally. I think so. It won the People's Choice Award at TIFF. It did? Yeah, which would never happen now. No, absolutely not. but But it did. What did he do after that? So... 
he kind of went in a self-reflective vein, if you will. Or some might say a self-indulgent vein. Yes, where his next film after Zadoichi was not the sequel that everybody expected to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never returned to the character ever again. Too bad, I think. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting to see where he yeah. could have taken it. Was a film called Takashi's. And I had never seen this film, mostly because I had read the uh, log line. I was like, eh, that's nah, not really for me. Where Takashi Kitano, the actor, meets a doppelganger of himself, also played by Kitano, who this guy has blonde hair and he is a um, struggling actor, but doesn't have the kind of success that the real Kitano has. And I thought it was going to be like a Prince and the Popper kind of thing, mm-hmm. and that is not what it is at all. It becomes very surreal. Yes. Very, like, aggressively surreal. It's been called David Lynchian, but I think its closest point of reference would be Fellini's Eight and a Half. Yeah. Where it kind of goes in and out of reality. Once you think you're in a stream that makes sense, elements will come in at the last second. You're like, oh, wait, no, this is another uh, nonsense sequence. It's not a movie that has a very good reputation, but I have to say, when I saw it in 2007, I really enjoyed it. Watching it again after mainlining so many Katano films, I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, good, it. good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very uh, susceptible to this kind of, like, craziness. It's the most fast-paced Katano film that I've ever seen, uh-huh. just by the nature that scenes are jumping from a gangster sequence to he's working at a convenience store, and then suddenly pulls out a gun and just kills a bunch of innocent people for no reason. There's this one sequence where a bunch of gangsters are all firing guns at each other in a field, and it cuts to an overhead shot and the shape that they're taking are constellations and that shape shoots up into the sky to show you which constellation they're forming. Hmm. So it's a bunch of like crazy nonsense like that. Well, I watched Glory to the Filmmaker, which was his movie right after that. I'd never seen it before and I have to say I didn't like it. Kitano plays himself and most of the movie is he's trying to think up what his next movie should be. And so you see like a bunch of skits, kind of like getting any, you know, whether it's a samurai drama or a sci-fi movie or a a kind of a kitchen sink uh, drama or an Ozu tribute. And at the end of every one, it's like, but then Katana realized he couldn't get the financing for this, so it was thrown aside. So it's almost kind of like Tristram Shandy or something like that. Isn't the main gag, though, in the movie, I've seen clips of it, is that whenever there's something dangerous, Katana is replaced by, like, a dummy? Yes. (laughs) And there are a lot of scenes uh, of, you know, just Katano looking sadly as his dummy is sitting next to him, (laughs) which are very indelible. Uh, One of them is my Facebook cover photo now. The problem with it is that it's not very funny. Yeah. I mean, like, one of the scenes is... Kitano is like doing a Matrix parody where Oof, people are firing. Oh I know, like the lamest. Like this is 2007 too, oh, so it's like way too late. Yeah, and the joke is, well, it's Kitano doing a Matrix parody. Maybe it's a movie that would have more resonance again to people who've seen him a lot on TV. Well, getting any, which we didn't really mention, was also Kitano's reaction to the kind of comedy that he was making. He said that he viewed the film as kind of anti-comedy. Like, he was going so deep into this that the joke was the joke. I actually think, like, Getting Any is ripe for rediscovery because you look at, like, weird Twitter now, or you look at something like Tim and Eric. That is pure Getting Any. Yeah. After Glory to the Filmmaker, he's been kind of, you know, in the winds, if you will. He made Achilles and the Tortoise, which I saw at TIFF at the time and wasn't that impressed by, uh, frankly. And then he went back to the gangster well with a film called Outrage. Which I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, it, it's not one of my favorites. It's basically a movie that has one idea, which is that there's no honor among thieves. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's just gangsters killing each other one by one and which is a little bit sad because that's the same kind of territory that he mined all the way back at something like brother well it feels like a very like conscious attempt to kind of recapture the magic i mean i like it because it's it's still Kitano. it's still Kitano. it's him doing, doing his best and it's it's funny throughout and it's his most violent movie probably but then i saw outrage beyond the sequel i didn't like it very much and i think the problem was that it tries to create this almost like Godfather 2 mythology uh, around the series. And it's like, Outrage was not a sturdy enough ground to build a house on, you know? And since then, he made a Yakuza comedy that I I haven't seen. I I only heard about it for the first time this week, but it came out like two years ago. And I think that other than that, he seems to be a director trying to find where he wants to go or what story he wants to tell at this point. Yeah. He uh, is still an actor, 
Um, like we mentioned, he's in Battle Royale. He's in Johnny Mnemonic. And he's going to be in Ghost of the, in the Shell next month. I don't think that'll be his breakthrough performance, but... I mean, he's a, he's almost 70, I yeah. think. I don't think there is a breakthrough performance coming at this point. And considering that he's been in, like, nine TV shows a week and a multitude of award-winning movies, he could probably rest easy. But here's what I'll say. I've been a little hard on some of the later Kitano films. I mean, hasn't everybody? But even a movie like Lloyd of the Filmmaker, I kind of enjoy it just because, like, I get to spend time... With with Beat Takeshi, mm. uh, he's just a an endlessly fascinating person to look at, and it, his and even in a lesser movie, like it still kind of has his style, his sense of humor, it has that flavor. Well, he's oh, we didn't mention it, but he also directed a lot of films where he doesn't star in, like Kids Return, right, which I'm less familiar with to be honest. That he made right after his accident, which I uh, got a chance watching, and it's a very interesting film because it goes deeper into the dramatic territories that in some of his films he kind of takes a step away from. Kids Returns being about two friends, one of them who ends up being a boxer, the other one who ends up being a Yakuza and the path their lives take. Oh, and I saw Dolls years ago, Mm -hmm. um, which was his most kind of serious movie. It was inspired by Japanese puppet theater. I'm no expert in this (laughs) stuff, but but like tragic puppet theater, basically. So it's three tragic stories and i remember finding it very moving when i saw it you know 10 years ago didn't you try (laughs) reading um a book about his work (laughs) well i tried reading this book called beat takeshi versus takeshi katano which was translated from japanese and i'd heard that it was like katano's favorite book about his movies um john woo was quoted on the cover jay hoberman was quoted and i was reading it's absolutely impenetrable (laughs) it makes no fucking sense maybe that's why katano likes it because he's like i want a book about my work to be completely illogical can i read a little bit of the prose in this book just because i'm i'm so like you sent it to me and i started reading it and i was like what okay here's a section called self-reference and that which is not spoken When one views this uniformity from another angle, one realizes that television self-references television. It is clear this is the locus of television's problem. Television always says that it is television. Television questions and simultaneously answers that its question is a question, or it raises a question that already includes its answer. In this way, television says nothing. A unique set of values comes into play as a result. According to those blah 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 blah. Makes no fucking sense. I'm sorry, like... And you do you like get a headache reading that? Yeah, like, well, no, like, it actually, I should understand this. John Woo is somewhere nodding along with this passage. It, like reading it made me want to cry because <laughs> I'm like, come on, what am I not getting? Well, uh, that about covers Katano, I think. Do we have any letters from our uh, loyal legion, from our Katano's army? <laughs> The ones that are always hanging around us and that we torture that mercilessly. Maybe if, if some tabloid reports on us, we can send our <laughs> listeners to beat them up. Well, yeah, Will, we do. I knew we had a letter. You told me before. <laughs> that was it, a little bit of a that was a little bit of a playlet that I just did. Yeah, it was kind of like a joke on a joke, if you will. <laughs> uh, uh, Justin Will's getting any's coming out soon. Please go see getting any. If you if you <laughs> have heard nothing else in this podcast, hear that. The letter is from listener Charles Demers, and he goes, Dear Will and Justin, Writing to you from Vancouver, mere minutes away from the stadium where the Balboa Drago fight was filmed, <laughs> oh, nice. and according to the expanded Rocky canon and Creed, the adoptive home city of Rocky Balboa's adult son. Hang on, that wasn't actually filmed in Russia? <laughs> I... When I think of Stallone, I think of a neo-realist filmmaker where he goes where the action is. Wow, Rocky Four and Rumble in the Bronx are both filmed in Vancouver. All my favorite movies. <laughs> and the letter continues. I really enjoyed the Stallone episode, not least because I am mildly obsessed with the very bad race politics of the Rocky franchise. Mm. Like Will, I had an outsized childhood reaction to watching Rocky, an enthusiasm that became slightly embarrassing in retrospect, as I came to understand the film's frankly reactionary white backlash ethos, which goes a lot deeper than just interracial boxing rivalry. Okay, so the guy writes a bunch of historical information, which I will take the pleasure to read, but I'm just letting the listeners know that I'm going to be reading this right now. The original Rocky's release coincided with the large-scale departure of particularly Catholic, white, ethnic, working-class urban voters from the New Deal liberal coalition that had held since the 1930s and into Reagan's lunch-pail republicanism. Some of the big driving issues behind that departure were feminism and reproductive rights, hence the special role of Catholicism, but also the shift in focus in black liberation movement from a largely civil rights orientation focused on the Jim Crow 
South into a nationwide emphasis on the black urban aimed at electing black mayors, fighting police violence, and dismantling school and housing segregation. It's in this context that the Rocky movies pitch big city white ethnics, Italian Rocky, Jewish Mickeys, as the real underdogs in a fight mm. against flashy, handsome, wealthy Apollo Creeds mm. and his subsequent avatars, which became genuinely politically toxic. Even after the black Italian truce struck between Rocky and Apollo in Rocky 3 and Rocky 4, the series returns to form with the ultra cynical and overly litigious Don King stand in character. <laughs> in Rocky V. In the world of Hollywood, Italians are arguably the least lily-white of whites. We see their ethnicity in a way that we don't see Irish, Polish, German, or to a certain extent even Jewish ethnicity in American film. Since borders tend to be where the skirmishes are, Italian-American stories on film often depict the politics of the American color line with an immediacy that other white stories lack. For instance, on The Sopranos, or from the other perspective, a great deal of Spike Lee's best filmography concerned black-Italian proximity and antagonism. Does this overlong letter lead to a question? <laughs> well, you know, thanks, Charles, for a nice little history lesson. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Yes, it does. I wanted to know what you guys thought about Ryan Coogler's Creed. I loved it, partly because, as an anti-racist Rocky fan, I felt like the picture retained almost everything I thrilled to in the original franchise while turning its terrible race politics on their head. Also because, as stated earlier, the film established in a throwaway line that Rocky's kid lives in Vancouver. And I just love the idea of having him close by. Anyhow, big fan of the podcast, Charlie Demers. P.S. My wife met Jackie Chan once. Oh, shit. All right, we got to talk about his wife meeting Jackie Chan. Where can, could this happen? Can you actually write back and tell us more about that? Because I want <laughs> I want to hear more. Um, I can't believe that what, we was didn't Was it during talk- the filming of Rumble in the Bronx? <laughs> that would, Something- it must have been. Oh, shit. I want to hear all about it. Anyway, that's, it is amazing that we didn't talk about Creed. Yeah, um, I don't know how that didn't come up yeah. because... At the time, me and Will, that's all we were kind of obsessed about was Creed. <laughs> we were recording this podcast at that point, were we? I believe we were. Uh, I think it might have been shortly after. It was on my top ten that year. Yes. Um, and Creed is a film that, um, after I got this letter, I really thought about what you know the racial politics of Creed are. And thinking back on the kind of challenges that the uh, character faces, it's almost portrayed in a more economic disparity between... Oh, yeah, class. Yeah, class. Michael Jordan's character, because he's at such a high class and son of boxing royalty, has difficulty wanting to achieve the dreams that he wants to have. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, a lot of the movie follows him kind of transgressing class lines. Uh, He starts, he's in a white-collar job, and he's not happy with it. And then he wants to hide the fact that he's Apollo Creed's son mm-hmm. until basically at the end getting a fragile truce with it. Who's the villain in that movie again? It's like kind of a, a posh like Irish boxer. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's like the world heavyweight champion in an Apollo Creed kind of style. He doesn't have anyone that wants to fight him anymore. So he needs like a big ticket name. So Apollo Creed's son will give him that notoriety that he needs. Um, yeah, it's interesting that Creed is the one that doesn't have a black villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Rocky Three, which is the one where he gets an alliance with Apollo, it has Mr. T. Yeah, the only reason that, you know, you could read that he has to be trained by Apollo is that he needs to be trained to fight like Mr. T, yeah. the black way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, has... and we all know the only reason that Apollo is there is to, you know, fend off accusations of racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much to add that the letter didn't, uh, I think, accurately mm-hmm. summarize. Uh, I would just say that I thought Creed was a really enjoyable movie. and Well, we got to talk about Sylvester Stallone's performance in it as well. Well, it's incredibly powerful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, How did he not win an Academy Award for that performance? Because what uh, ended up uh, winning, which was... Um, Mark Rylance. For everyone's favorite film, the BFG. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rocky's not supposed to win. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember we were talking about that yeah, before. Yeah. You were like, that's what makes it special, right? That he just went the distance yeah. and that's all that mattered. Yeah. He would have won if Rocky had died at the end of that movie, without a doubt. Maybe, but the movie wouldn't have been as good. Uh, you don't think so? I think it, I think that ending where they like they they walk up the steps together and Rocky's probably gonna die. Mm. I think that's very powerful. <laughs> Maybe he did like after the credits. Also, that you know that scene uh, when they're in the ring and uh, Rocky says to him, uh, 
you deserve to be here. He don't know what you've been through, and he sure as hell don't know what we've been through. I legit teared up in the theater <laughs> because, like, not only is it a powerful statement in the context of the movie, but I just thought about how much we've been through with Rocky mm-hmm. over 40 years. They're like the before sunrise of boxing. Yeah, uh, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know what? He's right. <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. don't know what we've been through. Drago, Mr. T. But hopefully, uh, Charles, Charlie, I don't know on what terms that we're, we're on right now. Um, as far as the racial politics of Creed, I, I don't know if we have anything else to add. Well, I don't, I don't know if Creed seems fairly blameless, I mean, compared to the rest of the series. I don't know if it absolves the series. No, I don't sense. think it I does. I don't think it does. Because basically, it's, you know, giving Michael Jordan's character an equal playing field, because we're telling another Rocky-like story. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm the one to talk about, like, how he deals with it. You know, because it, it also comes down to representation, right? Yeah. Which is, like, very important. And the fact that there is... Uh, a movie that you know Rocky is in that does have that representation where it's not necessarily a villain gone good yeah I do think Creed is a fitting end to the series not least because of the racial politics absolutely I think it's the perfect end to the Rocky films that you could get yeah all right. So after all this, it's time to talk about what our next week's subject is going to be. Next week is failed comedy vehicles. <laughs> so, so we're really going to stretch our um, I just uh, academic fun. muscles. Uh, I mean, there there's the phenomenon. I think we're all familiar with it of the comedian who gets a chance to make a movie. Here's their big their big shot at stardom. This is going to be my Ace Ventura. I bought my ticket to uh, Tom Green's Freddy Got Fingered on that first night, sitting in the audience waiting to be blown away. And the movie, that's a lie. And the movie failed. Oh, um, like it tanks completely. And and it's their one and only shot. And I feel like, you know, a movie like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, it's like, it's so balls to the wall. Carrie really throws it all out there and it's make or break. If that movie had not made money at the box office, it would have been just a colossal embarrassment. And so then you look at a movie like Corky Romano, which is similar. Chris Kattan just throws himself into it and didn't work. Yeah, like he's in an office and he's going to fucking smash every piece of paper and he's going to be sweating like he's never sweat before. And when you have heavyweights backing him up, like Peter Berg, Chris Penn, how can you fail? Yeah. All right. So next week we're going to be watching Corky Romano, Freddy Got Fingered. Hell yes. And... Uh, we're going to go a little classic with a little movie called... Uh, it's in the Bag, starring the forgotten radio comedian Fred Allen, best known for his feud with Jack Benny. So wait, do you own this movie on Blu-ray? I do. So you're just like, I have this on Blu-ray. Can we just talk about it? Yeah. But also, like, I kind of want to, like, stretch us a little bit. Oh, and uh, probably Dirty Work, too. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? That was the movie that made us want to do this subject. with with Norm MacDonald. Because, like, you know, we got some bad ones. We're going to talk about Freddy Got Fingered and its badness. I, which may be goodness, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, You got to tune in. Although maybe I'm just looking at it through rose-colored glasses. (laughs) But Norm MacDonald is undeniably a hilarious human being. Yeah. So why didn't his attempt at a star role work? We'll find out. Yeah, dirty work. You know, this is, I think you said this, like, this could be a, a series of episodes, basically. Like, later on, we could return to it and do the Jerky Boys movie yeah. or the Adventures of Ford Fairlane <laughs> or The Ladies' Man with yeah. Tim Meadows. We could do all, um, a Superstar with... Um, yeah, with uh, Molly Shannon, yeah. That's just like Eddie, an SNL yeah. version of the episode. Or right? a Rocket Man with Harlan Williams. <laughs> oh, man, what stinkers. We're just going to do our own film festival. Can you imagine? <laughs> I think I, I think I would go insane. It would be like it would be like John Carpenter's cigarette burns. Or yeah, the end of In the Mouth of Madness where you're just <laughs> yeah. sitting in the audience, you're like, ah! <laughs> Well, it's been a long time since I've seen Corky Romano. Perhaps it will hold up. Well, I think I've told this story before where I was scarred by Corky Romano. Where where did, where did it touch you? Show me on the doll. Our whole class went to see the movie in the big city, because I lived in a small town. And we could see whatever movie we wanted. And I was peer pressured into seeing Corky Romano instead of Iron Monkey. And I later found out that one of my classmates did go see Iron Monkey by himself. (laughs) And he thought it was amazing. Now, Uh, I should point out that at this point, I had already seen Iron Monkey because I had the Hong Kong VCD. Wow. But to see it on the big screen. With all your friends. Well, no, because no one went. Okay. So I would have been by myself in the theater, probably. But I mean, if they'd all voted to go that way. Yes. Yeah. But no, we saw Corky Romano. And I feel like I'm the only person who remembers that night. So you kind of have some unfinished business with Corky Romano. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to fucking drag it to the back settle, alleyway. Settle six beat it up. Okay. Do you guys want some cookies? What if we got Chris Catan on the episode? We could probably get him. <laughs> Just <laughs> call him up. His name's in the book. And be like, hey, Chris. When, you... When's Corky 2 coming out? <laughs> 
Do you remember the posters for the movie that had uh, His face? Who, who is Corky Romano? <laughs> We're burning valuable Corky Romano material that we should be saving for next week. All right, all right. So remember to give us reviews on iTunes. You can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Hell yeah. And we'll be uh, talking to you next week, or should I say, making you laugh next <laughs> week. My name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So we were just looking at my DVD collection that watches over us like a movie god while we record this podcast. I'm worried it's going to fall over at any given moment. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's not going to fall over, Will. Don't worry. But we were looking at some stuff, and I was like, why do I own that? And it's because a lot of the times it was a deal at places like HMV or, man, I don't even remember what its name was. Sunrise Records? Remember there was HMV and Music World? Oh, yeah. God, that's a long time ago. Yeah, and I remember there would always be those two. And then, of course, Sam the Record Man, also downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, HMV will be no more, because they've announced that they are closing down their business. So there is no dedicated movie place that exists anymore, other than... Bay Street Video. I mean, like, chains. Yeah, yeah. uh, In Canada, or, I don't know about America. Yeah, I don't know either. Like, well, I guess there's, like, Target and Walmart. But you didn't usually go to HMV very often, right? I, I mean, I work very near HMV, so mm-hmm. it was very easy for me to just, like, drop in, you know, on the way home, uh, which I did a lot. <laughs> oh, you did? You know, the- like like putting a pie on the windowsill, basically, for me. <laughs> and the one in downtown Toronto did carry, like, a lot of more third-tier or fourth-tier discs. Oh, yeah, I bought, like, tons of crap from HMV <laughs> over the years. Uh, I, they Their Criterion collections were always, like... Dependably, like five bucks less than Amazon. Mm-hmm. So. HMV is also a place that is very important in my youth, where I would go, and when they would have like two movies for forty dollars, I'd be like, I really want this one, and then I'll buy some other bullshit and, that I don't need. And you know what? Like, isn't that crazy though? Because you're upselling. Like, uh-huh. why, why not just spend twenty five dollars on the thing you want rather than spend forty dollars <laughs> on a thing you want and something you don't want? Yeah. And yet, how many times did I fall in that trap? Uh, so many times. So many times. <laughs> where I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm trying to think of something specific. It's, well, it's like that on Amazon now, too. Like, to get to the free shipping. How much How much shit have I bought just to get to free shipping? <laughs> Where have you just paid the well, shipping? Because I'll see something. Oh, that's an amazing deal. I got to get that. Oh, I got to get something <laughs> for free shipping. I end up spending what I would have spent on, on the thing before the deal. It's going to be real interesting of how the buying landscape is now that HMV isn't there. Now, you've said in the in the past that you just buy everything off Amazon now anyway. Yeah. But you basically. don't really go into stores. I mean, I go to some of the used bookstores, but... I don't mean that you're like a recluse in yeah. your home, not leaving unless you're recording a porn I, cinema club. I'm not, I'm not like, oh, the thi- something has just come out. I better go to my brick and mortar store to get it today. Usually I've just pre-ordered it. See, that's right. the way that I feel yeah. as a person of no means that... You know, that old thing about poor people spend more on shoes because they keep buying shitty shoes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, hey, give me some money in my hand and DVDs out at HMV. I'm like, I can't wait for Amazon. I need it now. Yeah. And so I would often buy a lot of discs from there. And now that that temptation doesn't exist anymore, I don't know what, like, I feel like I'm going to start rebuilding my life. I'm <laughs> Yeah, invest. Go outside more. Get yeah. a, start an RRSP. <laughs> exactly. No, that's not going to happen. But how does that affect people that buy discs? Will they continue buying discs? Will they? I don't know. I mean, there is actually a pretty large market for discs. That's like there's a large working class market. Yes. Like if you go to any sort of like uh, Goodwill or Dollarama or DVD liquidation place, you'll always f- see a lot of like working class people buying entertainment. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, I sound like I sound <laughs> yeah. like very like. Mm, yes, as I uh, well, the fa- my monocle. Listen, I'm there too. Yeah, okay, looking for discs, well, and uh, uh, but I mean, it is like an actual source of entertainment for a lot of people. And uh, I think that when it's not right there in front of you to buy, and with those deals, I think that the amount of DVDs that are actually going to be sold is going to drop a lot. Well, I don't know. I actually find I'm often more tempted to buy something on the internet because it's just so easy. It's a click of the button. Whereas mm. when I'm in the store, there is the like picking the thing up and then taking it to another person and handing over the money it's it's a more complicated action and therefore i'm more inclined to second guess myself that's funny because i uh rarely buy off the internet and i think it's because the internet number one it takes more time and number two that that money needs to be there Mm. when i order it while there's less time to think about it if I just have the money and I'm like, I'm going to go down to a store and buy it right now. I'm also very conscious of like, let's say I have $60 in my wallet. Yes. 
and I need the $60 for food and to get on the subway and to do something else and buy groceries or whatever. And if I, I buy a $25 Blu-ray at HMV, it's like, fuck, that's a huge dent in the $60 I have. <laughs> See, maybe that's what I need. Whereas, I need to carry money whereas around. Whereas if I have my voluminous bank account full of, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's so much money. You don't know what to do like with it. It's just 20 bucks. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go. I drop 20 bucks on the, on the ground. I don't pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> but I was having a little bit of an argument with a friend, which is that. Now that HMV is closing down, that actually opens up the market for places like Suspect, Bay Street Video, or more like little shops that are selling direct to like the market that they want. I mean, I would love if, you know, Blu-rays could become a vinyl-like thing. Mm-hmm. Or just physical uh, media in yeah. itself. Um, I mean, you know, a place like Suspect just closed, but something like Suspect, where if it could be like a curated selection with a lot of other like cultural stuff, mm-hmm. like Suspect, for instance, had zines and books, action and, figures yeah. and t-shirts and stuff. I mean, I think, I think that'd be great. Uh, one of the problems is, you know, you got to be able to pay rent and a yes. lot of these places can't. Yeah, especially when you're downtown. Yeah. I mean, Suspect closed because of other factors, which is the building that it was in was being um, turned into condos. Yeah, and they had like a fortuitous uh, deal with the rent there for so many years. Like they lived in a bubble there. And then once they once they started looking outwards, you know, the rents had risen drastically around them. And I know that at Bay Street Video, they actually own the building that like the space that they have. So they're not technically paying rent on it yeah they're just losing the rent they could be making if somebody else was there right so does it turn into places in people's basement where they sell dvds and action figures i mean i think it just it just becomes you know the internet i mean everyone's on amazon anyway yeah uh um, I, I think fewer and fewer like normies will buy DVDs. Fewer and fewer people normies are buying DVDs. Um, but I think that's why like the collectible market will just we're segueing back into the time of laserdisc. Yeah, where laserdiscs were uh, almost insanely expensive. Yeah, like they could be up to a hundred dollars for mm-hmm. the special edition of Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Yeah, um, and it's going to be very specific people because we've talked about this before. The DVD and Blu-ray market, as far as new releases go, has never been better than it is right now. Yeah, because they're targeting insane people like us. Yes, um, and those are the people that are buying it. So yeah. these little stores, I feel will live on the outskirts. I, I hope so. I hope yeah. there's a market for something like this. But you won't go there because, you know, it's too far. <laughs> I have Amazon. 